Forletta Investigates. Welcome to Forletta Investigates. Investigative security consultant Larry Forletta is a highly decorated former DEA agent and member of the Maryland State Police. Forletta Investigates aims to provide information on real-life encounters involving law enforcement, drug trafficking, and actual investigations. Listen to the show every Tuesday as we approach topics of crime and other issues affecting our communities with someone who has worked within law enforcement for over 25 years. Here is your host, Larry Forletta. Well, I want to welcome everyone to our show called Forletta Investigates. And uh, I'm going to welcome our guest, and I'm honored and fortunate to have him on our podcast. Our guest was one of the case agents in the investigation and responsible for the downfall of the former Panamanian dictator and President Manuel Noriega, and uh, also a lot of other major drug traffickers, such as the uh, Ochoa brothers. I want to welcome Lenny Athis. Welcome to our show, Lenny. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Lenny, as part of my monologue, uh, and I'm sure you'll agree with the with the success of DEA and their agents really go unheralded. Absolutely. One of the finest law enforcement agencies that was ever created. Okay. So over your 28 years of law enforcement experience, you were also a, a Maryland State Trooper. That's correct. I was. from uh, I joined as a cadet right out of high school in August of 1970. And I worked uh, two and a half years in Western Maryland in the Cumberland Barrack in Allegheny County, Maryland, and Garrett County, Maryland. And then in January 1973, I went into the police academy. I graduated in June. I was assigned to Eastern Baltimore County and then Western Baltimore County in uniform. And I remained in uniform until April 1976 when I went into the narcotics section, Maryland State Police, Intelligence Division Narcotics Section. And I basically worked undercover and investigated drug traffickers from April 1976 until I resigned from DEA in December 1980. I mean, excuse me, resigned from the state police to take a job with DEA. And I also wanted to mention that you were one of the uh, responsible individuals, and I'll use this as a disclaimer, you talked me into joining DEA, and uh, uh, I never looked back after that. Um, I also wanted to mention that Lenny is a former federal prosecutor. Uh, He worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Miami, and uh, he's currently a defense lawyer in South Florida, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Lenny, can you tell us a little bit about your career? Well, I've been very blessed, um, uh, very blessed in my career. Um, State Police was a great organization. I loved working narcotics, and the one thing about working narcotic investigations that I learned early on is that when you do investigate drug trafficking organizations, you touch virtually on every criminal offense there is in the books. Um, There's guns, there's thefts, there's burglaries, there's robberies, there's carjackings, murder, even counterfeiting. Um, You name it, you're going to find it in drug trafficking investigations. And that's kind of what I learned early on in the narcotics section of the state police. And it continued. And um, I really found it to be very challenging. And I stayed in the narcotics section until DEA hired me in in um, December 1980. And then I left and went to agent school in January of 1981, graduated in March. 
and I was assigned to Baltimore for six years uh, after agent school. And then I, in 1986, I was reassigned to the Barranquilla resident office, which is a Caribbean port city on the north coast of Colombia, South America. I remained there for two years, and then I came to Miami in 19, July 1988. and remained in Miami until I retired from DEA in November 2008. I was mandatorily retired due to age. And I, it was a tremendous career. Um, so many experiences that I can't even remember all of them. Um, great people. I've met some fantastic investigators and, and people from all around the world. And it, it was just an absolutely wonderful career. I traveled a lot. I was in Europe a number of times in South America and Central America. And I was fortunate enough to be assigned to the Noriega case, uh, which was great. And um, I also um, was assigned by DEA Miami to bring back both of the Rodriguez or Wayla brothers to the States. I'd been assigned to that case when it was nearing uh, preparation for trial. Uh, the two brothers were extradited, Gilberto and Miguel, and I uh, went to DEA aircraft to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and picked up Gilberto and brought him back to Miami, and I went to a military base in Colombia and on a DEA Learjet and brought back Miguel Rodriguez, and then participated <clears throat> somewhat in their prosecution here as an agent. I had a lot of cases over the years, and, and um, Miami is really a, if you want to be a federal narcotics agent and you want to work, Miami was the place to do it at the time, and it was a wonderful career. The time went by so fast that I have no idea what happened all the time, and um, I was fortunate enough to be accepted to law school after the Noriega case, and I went to law school at night while I was still an agent. went to the University of Miami School of Law, and I was graduated in December 1995, I started in 92, and then I passed the bar and was admitted to the Florida Bar in May 96. And then I continued uh, and was very fortunate. I probably, if I'm not the only DEA agent, I'm one of the very few who was lucky enough to be appointed as a special assistant U.S. attorney in Miami. The FBI has done this for many, many years. So is the IRS and several of the local departments where they will take agents who are attorneys and assign them to the U.S. Attorney's Office on a full-time basis, and they receive a commission as a special assistant U.S. attorney. I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to do that for the last four years of my career, where I was assigned to the U.S. Attorney's Office and prosecuted DEA cases and, and um, acted just like an AUSA, but I was still employed and paid by the DEA, even though I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I want to take you back a little bit, Lenny. Let's talk about uh, uh, some of the domestic cases that you're involved in Baltimore, how dangerous the city Baltimore is, and then we'll we'll go we'll go from there into your uh, assignment in Barranquilla. Well, uh, there were a number of cases I, I had in Baltimore. Uh, I've always been a fan of what we call in the in the business historical conspiracy cases. Right. And basically, a historical conspiracy case is where you know they were selling drugs and you prove they were doing it without actually catching them possessing the drugs. Uh, Baltimore had a number of good organizations um, that were selling drugs, cocaine and marijuana. And when I was in the state police, I was 
assigned as just one of the investigators on a case called the Blinken. Uh, the Blinkens, that's what they call it. That was their last name. It was a group mm-hmm. group of brothers that were <clears throat> importing marijuana from from Florida and selling it all over the Maryland area. And we did a bunch of wiretaps along with the Baltimore County Police, and uh, it ultimately resulted in the seizure of over a ton of marijuana, which in the mid-70s was a lot. Uh, mid to late 70s, I guess it was probably about 77, 78, if I, my memory serves me correctly. And it was a, a very large case, and it was very interesting. And um, a lot of people went down and behind that, and the uh, routes were all shut down, and they actually got a bunch of marijuana on a farm in northern Florida as a result of that as well, the Florida authorities did. Mm-hmm. And and then uh, there were a number of domestic cases or in the state police where you would just go to an area for instance, Frederick, Maryland is one area in particular. And you, you would just, when you were a trooper, you just go up there and start hanging out. Usually you would have informants introduce you and you go around different places and meet people and start buying drugs. And that's what we did. And uh, sometimes these cases would go on for over a year. And then we would come back and, and have a, a large takedown where it's all coordinated mm-hmm. and, or arrested and brought, to, and brought to justice for selling the drugs. So that was very interesting as well. And uh, at times it could be very dangerous. Um, I had a case in Frederick where I'd been buying heroin from a group of people. And after we took them down, one of the people who had sold me heroin thought his wife was running around with a guy. And he suspected that her boyfriend, his wife's boyfriend, was the one who cooperated with us. So he tracked him down and shot him in broad daylight in the middle of Frederick. Uh, we didn't know the guy. We had nothing to do with him. Don't to this day, never, never heard of the guy, but he killed him. And then he was a fugitive himself for a year or so. And then he finally turned himself in. So it's, it's very dangerous. Um, I drove a getaway car in an armed holdup in Western Maryland in Mount Savage, uh, undercover. And so there was a lot of that kind of stuff that went on back in those days. Right. And in the city of Baltimore, I mean, with, the. Uh... It's always been a hub for the major heroin problem that uh, still continues to this day. Um, and as a DEA agent, um, I think we both know how dangerous the city of Baltimore is and some of the uh, heroin traffickers in the city. They certainly are. There's no question about that. When I got back from agent school, there was another um, another agent that we work with a lot. He had been a former Baltimore City policeman. His name was Jack Ryan. And Jack had a case, a heroin case, and we were all helping with it and working on it. And during the course of the investigation, Jack had records of a hotel in Huxville, Maryland, which is a, a, a city in Baltimore County. And the hotel records came from a particular hotel where some of the defendants, it's a very simple, common, routine matter to serve a subpoena and get hotel documents. Well, some of these criminals didn't like the fact that the hotel gave their housing documents up and threatened the people. Well, there was really nothing the people at the hotel hotel could do about it because they had received a subpoena from the government and they honored the subpoena. But they went in with a Mac 11 submachine gun and killed two people who were working. And one of them was the sister of the woman he actually threatened. So that, that was ridiculously senseless murder for something those people had no control over at all. But, but that's the kind of things that happened in those days. 
And we also worked on a on a uh, case when I first got back with the FBI, where we had um, court authorized wiretaps and room bugs in a in a place, and um, they wouldn't sell heroin to anybody they weren't in jail with. That's how sophisticated their operation was. But ultimately, uh, we were able to take them down. But there was a couple of people killed that they thought were informants in that case, but they were not. So this type of thing just goes on all the time uh, in the city. Unfortunately, um, I had a friend of mine. His name was Marty Ward. He was a Baltimore City detective assigned to DEA. Right. And I'll never forget, it was a Friday. I had to go to Alabama on another case I was working, the Sam Scalio case. And he and I were in the parking lot, and Marty was a Vietnam vet, combat vet, just a fantastic guy. And uh, we were talking. I said, well, we got to get together and have lunch or something. He said, yeah, okay, we'll do it next week. I said, well, I'll be going in Alabama next week, but when I get back, we will. So that was the end of that. It was on a Friday, and I left him over the weekend. I went to Alabama. So Monday, the following Monday afternoon, I call in the office just for messages. And everyone's crying and upset, and I learned that Marty and uh, another uh, agent that I graduated with Rich Broughton and another Baltimore City detective, Gary Childs, who was assigned to DEA, went on a, a heroin raid, and Marty was undercover, and the perpetrator shot Marty and killed him. And uh, that was just horrible. Marty was a was a great person. His memory will will always be in my mind. Yeah, yeah, and 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 a lot of people's minds, and it was one of those unfortunate situations, and. Sometimes, uh, you know, Marty's uh, unfortunate demise uh, led to some additional safety precautions and training and just listening uh, to Marty's plea with the criminal element about uh, not shooting him was just uh, bone chilling uh, to listen to that. And uh, we know that Marty's in a, in a good place, a great guy. And on that case... Um... One of the guys, I believe it was Rich Broughton, went up the stairs to try to help Marty after he was shot. And if you don't know the row houses in Baltimore City, they have very, very narrow stairwells, that you, almost right. second, two or two or three story buildings, and very, very narrow winding stairways. And it was either Rich or Gary. I, I want to say it was Rich, but I could be wrong. It could have been Gary Childs, but Gary Childs and Rich Broughton were both there. And they went up. And the guy stuck his hand around the corner of the wall facing down the steps where they were coming up and shot point blank range. And I believe it was Richard. In fact, I remember he had powder burns on his face, but the round missed him. Well, uh, the good Lord uh, took one of our, our servants, but he uh, he spared another that, that day. That was a horrible day. And, and I'll never forget that day. Um, it was really bad. Yeah, that's... Um... That's the tough part about losing your friends on uh, on this job as DEA or in law enforcement altogether and how dangerous uh, our profession really is. I, I had an instance in Miami uh, after I'd gotten, after I left uh, Barranquilla, I got sent to Miami. I, I forget how long I'd been in Miami. I'd been here a while. But there was a um, agent by the name of Stevens. And he hooked up with me because there were a group of people that I had identified when I was in Columbia that ran a business near our office in Miami, in the Doral area. And I kind of had targeted them and he had received information on that. So he, um, he got a hold of me and I said, well, come on, I'll show you where the, uh, where the warehouse is. And 
we go, well, you know, with two, two people working on it, two heads are better than one. And hopefully somebody will come up with some evidence. So I took him over and, and we rode past the warehouse and I showed him, showed him everything that I knew at that point about the warehouse. And as we're driving away, they were calling him on the air on the radio. And he answered and they wanted him to hurry up and get back to the office because he had to go on a raid. So we go back, we go back to the office. He gets out of my car, gets in his car and drives up to a place called Miami Lakes, not too far from the office. They had a raid, uh, an undercover, an informant was in there and a guy came in to, to sell drugs and he was a ripoff. He killed the informant and he shot Kevin Stevens, mm. shot Kevin Stevens in his left arm. Hmm. with a 45 um and kevin had a very very long recovery from that but he ended up uh, recovering fine and um went on and finished his career and he was a great agent but um that's just how how fragile yeah. life is and how quick things can happen yeah especially in the world of uh of drug law enforcement for sure so let's let's go back uh take you back a little bit to barranquilla columbia and your assignment there and talk about the, uh, the risk and challenges that you faced, uh, working in Barranquilla, Colombia. Well, I, I will say this with this caveat, the country of Colombia has changed dramatically and the police have changed dramatically since those days. But one of the things that I found out about me when I got down there is how naive I was. I had no uh, earthly idea of how the extent to the extent of corruption and how much influenced everything in Colombia when I first got there. And it was, it was challenging and it was frustrating. And I, I, I'll never forget. I went with my boss who had spent a lot of time in Latin America and he's a Mexican American. He's fluent, fluent Spanish speaker. And his name was Mike B. Hill. And we went to a jail because two informants who were both pilots were working for DEA, not us or me or anything, but they were just working for DEA and they had mechanical problems or something and landed in Barranquilla and the police arrested them because they hadn't entered the country properly. So they were in jail. So we went to the jail to see them uh, at the request of wherever they were, whoever they were working with. And I was just told to go along. We tried to go into the jail and the guard says, I'm not letting you in unless you pay, pay me. Well, I was just, just beside myself and and i'm getting frustrated and i'm kind of arguing with the guy we're from the consulate what are you doing da, 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 da. and my boss just laughed he said ah, here he gave him a few pesos and they allowed us in <laughs> I, I, I was just shaking my head i said this guy would be in handcuffs but then i realized i'm in a foreign country yeah so, so it, it took a little while for me to learn how things are handled down there but yeah i, I never I, i'll forget i'll never forget another one either um Back then, this was uh, we had extradition. It wasn't done very often, but we had an extradition agreement with Colombia. Um, then after that, it went away for many years, then it came back again, and it's back now. But in those days, we had an extradition agreement, but it really wasn't occurring very frequently. And the list of who we wanted was, you know, it wasn't any secret or anything. It's just on a piece of paper. These are the guys that are on the, the Colombians are on the extradition list. Well, I was in the office and had this police, uh, I don't recall if he was a lieutenant or a captain. I'm going to say he was a lieutenant. But he was there and um, he was asking me what the list was. So I told him in my poor Spanish, uh, 
and we got, he says, well, could I have a copy of that so I could look at them? And there wasn't any reason not to give him a copy. It was certainly a public record. So I gave him a, a copy of it. And at that time, his vehicle was broken. So he had borrowed one of our vehicles that DEA had in Barranquilla, and they were armored. They had mm-hmm. armor, uh, armored windows and armored plate in the, in the vehicle to protect us. I didn't think anything more about it. And then a couple weeks later, a boss uh, at the time says, you're not going to believe this. He says, but the CIA had an informant in a house up in Barranquilla. And that police official went in uh, with Xerox copies of the extradition list, selling them and showing the traffickers where the armor was in our cars. Hmm. Well, I, you know, to, to, uh, Mimic the church lady. Ain't that special. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and, uh, and so I thought, wow. And um, But those kind of incidents happened happened on occasion. But there were also a lot of very good people who, um, mm-hmm. who risked their lives. I got stranded. Um, what went with, what, back up a little bit, I went with the uh, police uh, on a search for a marijuana stash. Uh, near Santa Marta, which is uh, on the north coast of Colombia, on the Caribbean as well. And we were flying in these helicopters in the morning, and I could barely see the earth. Uh, these larger helicopters with a couple of the older pilots. I mean, they were so high, I don't know how we were supposed to see anything. Then we're out there for about an hour, and they have to go back to eat lunch. So we go back, and we eat lunch. And then the afternoon, I was in a, a uh, smaller helicopter with another agent and an informant. And this helicopter was being piloted by a young lieutenant who had just gotten out of school, helicopter school, a few months before. And he, he wanted to find this uh, marijuana. Actually, he was flying below treetop level. So we're going in and out of the jungle area there. And all of a sudden, we see a blue tarp on the ground. And we circle and we land. And there's the other helicopters come in. There's a total of 17 cops myself and another agent and the informant. We start securing the perimeter. It definitely, it was a, it was an operation. Uh, there were marijuana bales piled as high as a two-story building. And there were presses and uh, materials to, to take the marijuana and make them into bales. There were um, sleeping facilities. And everyone had fled into the jungle when we arrived. We were still securing the premises. We, I mean, everything wasn't even secured yet. And all three of the helicopters take off, basically leaving us there. And we stayed there the entire night. Our reinforcements were walking 25 kilometers and didn't get there until dawn. Well, about the middle of the night, we were attacked. One of our guards was uh, was not asleep. He was looking. There was enough moonlight. He saw a handful of men coming up through the through the woods. And they were armed, and he let a magazine go from his Galea assault rifle, and then they fired back, and we just sat there for the rest of the night. I, I will say this. Um, machine guns in the jungle are loud. <laughs> at yeah, yeah, I bet they are. <laughs> so we stayed there the whole next day. I mean, I mean I'm sorry, the whole night, just wondering if it was going to happen again. And then in the morning, our, our reinforcements got there, and I made a video of it in DEA headquarters. Has the, has the video and the original actually uh, is was used in a trial for the guy that owned that marijuana years later in Oklahoma where I testified. 
anyway, um, so we're there, and uh, they had a landing strip nearby, and they had fuel, and the police burned the fuel, and we stayed there until help finally help came and got us out of there the next day. I ate mangoes for two days. I bet I didn't eat a mango for <laughs> five five years after that. That's all I had to eat for two days, and I. It took me a long time for eating mangoes again because we weren't prepared to stay there all night. We had all I had was a nine millimeter handgun, and I didn't have any food. Or I mean, I had a canteen, and knives, and stuff, boots, and camp and uh, compass, but I didn't have any any food or anything. Was we didn't anticipate it, but we got through it. We got back, and then what was interesting is the way the information came down to me at the time is that. Um, it was owned by a, a, a trafficker. They used to call him El Mono. And El Mono was very upset that his marijuana was caught and burned and destroyed. He was so upset, he put a casket in the back of a pickup truck and had him driving around the Santa Marta police station for an entire day. Hmm. And there were rumors that there were people who were um, kidnapped and, um, and tortured officials, law enforcement officials, because he had paid to have that protection and didn't and didn't receive it, but uh, we had a young uh, a young lieutenant pilot who wanted to do his job in, in the afternoon in the morning. I mean, I couldn't hardly see the earth; we were so high. So that's the kind of thing you used to have to deal with in Colombia, but it is mm-hmm. immensely better. Um, yeah. In my personal opinion, President Uribe was the, the driving force that changed that whole country, and um, he did a wonderful job as president. But that's just you know here and there, but. That's just the kind of thing you run into, you know, in, in a lot of your third world nations that you have to deal with. I mean, sure. our, our agents run into that in, in the Far East. They run into that in, in Central America and in South America. Right. Well, um, and so you work pretty much collectively with the Colombian National Police, pretty much hand in hand, as all the agents have really done in, in, in South America. Um, so tell us um, about an incident uh What's actually, uh, I'll say, forced you to leave Colombia. Uh, and if I recall correctly, uh, you were at a shooting range uh, that day. Part of it was over this marijuana that I just told the story I just told you about. Mm-hmm. We were evacuated twice, actually, from Colombia. And it's kind of a dichotomy because if you go to Bogota at the time, it was the old embassy, which was in the city center area. And there was about 300 guards total there. Count the Marine had a big, Marines had a big contingent, of course, the Marines, security guards. And then they had a private force and there were a couple of hundred. I don't know if I'm right on 300, but there were, there were, there were a lot, a lot of guards. I mean, they were everywhere. You go an hour away in the same country to the Barranquilla consulate, and we were a small little brick building in a shopping center next to a uh, supermarket behind the zoo. And we had a little, one of those little poles like you see uh, where you just lift the pole up and then they push it back down. We had a couple of, a couple of uh, private security guards and that was it. Mm-hmm. And at the time there was uh, the, of course, all the, the uh, gorillas and the insurgents were all active. So you had those and the um, Pablo Escobar was still up and around and happy and active, and the whole Medellin cartel was still active. Uh, uh, later, Carlos later uh, had been taken out of there right before I got there. But the rest of them, Pablo and, and the rest of them were all there. And so we 
we didn't have that level of protection, but nevertheless, we were in the same country where all this was going on. Well, they started getting a lot of threats. And the first time was around Thanksgiving. I remember that. And we got a phone call and they said, uh, all right, you're, you're, we're flying in a plane from Panama, DEA plane. You're out of there uh, by close of business today. And it was something just like a movie. We're, we're burning and shredding and, and tearing things down and, you know, making sure nothing is left that if they were to overrun the place, they wouldn't find anything. The information was that they were going to do a, um, a light anti-tank weapon, a Law's rocket attack on our office. So I don't really remember at this point where that information came from, although I do recall that it had something to do, at least part of it was due to the marijuana um, seizure that had happened a few months before. Anyhow, so we all did what they said, and they took us to Bogota, and they didn't really know what to do with us from that point, and then um, they ended up um, just letting us hang out in Bogota for a while. And then, um, then I went on leave for Christmas because it was around Thanksgiving. And I just, just took a little extra time and everybody sort of just stayed away from the place. And we went back after the first of the year. Um, their assessment was that it was safe for us to go back at that point. So then um, we're in there, I don't know, a couple months. And spring was starting to come and it happened again. And it was another one of these. You'll be out of there by four o'clock. So we all packed up and got out of there again from the consulate. And they sent us back down to Bogota for a while and then didn't know what to do. So they sent people different places. So they sent two of us, myself and another agent, to uh, BEA headquarters. And we were out that time probably, I want to say, roughly six or seven weeks, or maybe a little longer. And then we went back. And hung out and really kind of maintained a low profile. And then I rotated out of there in July. In Bogota, I was in my hotel. I wasn't anywhere near there. They shot a laws rocket at the embassy and dumped the tube on the ground and ran. But I guess it wasn't a very well-made one because it didn't detonate when it hit the building. So it just put a put a little bit of some damage to the front of the building. But it did the, the actual explosive didn't detonate. Do you uh, Was there an incident that, uh, if you recall, that you, you were pulled over? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That was that was the that might have been the second after we were back in January. Yeah, I was leaving. I left the office and they gave me an M4 to take home. This was during the threats, and I was going back to my um to my housing, which wasn't very far. And all of a sudden, these cars surround me, and it's police get out, and they're all pointing guns at me. I have absolutely no idea why, and I'm sitting there with an M4. So. They're all pointing their, their assault rifles at me. And this captain comes up and I'm, you know, yelling to him in Spanish and I'm a diplomat. Here's my diplomatic passport with DEA and the consulate. And he opens it up and uh, he's looking at the gun. And I says, well, what do you stop me for? What I did? He just keeps pointing his gun at me. And he's going through my, my um, SUV. I think it was a big Bronco. And um, I kept asking. He wouldn't answer me. And, you know, I, I said, I, you know, DEA and da 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 da. I got my creds, my documents, Colombian documents and all that. And then he just turns around and walks away. <laughs> I have no idea what it was for, why, or anything else, but um, it was kind of hairy. Yeah, I'm sure it was, especially with somebody pointing their weapons at you and being outnumbered like that. I don't even know why they pulled me over to this day. I have no idea. Do you think uh, they may have been surveilling uh, and looking for agents at that point? 
Well, if they were, they had one. They didn't do anything to me, so uh, I don't really know. I, I have absolutely no idea. I'd just be doing nothing but guessing. Right. Well, I, I told the, uh, you know, of course, immediately told the office about it as soon as I could, and they tried to, to run some uh, inquiries on it. Nobody was admitting that they did it, so right. I never heard any more about it. And that's just another one of those big mysteries that happens down there. Well, uh, I'm assuming that that was a message to them, message from them, you know, about uh, being active in Colombia. I guess it may very well have been. It may very well have been. So, um, so you eventually leave Colombia and then uh, you go to Miami and uh, tell us a little bit about Miami and, and uh, some of the investigations there. And then we'll talk to you about um, then you become a federal prosecutor. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit as you were an agent in, in Miami. Well, I, I, as I said before, if you want to be a federal narcotics agent those days, Miami was certainly a very good place to do it if you wanted to work. Um, we were very proud of our criminals. We had some of the best in the world. <laughs> um, they were just the cases were always there and they were always nice cases. And, and it, it just, it was just great. I mean, uh, as far as work goes, I mean, there was just a tremendous amount of, of stuff to do. There were a lot of hardworking people and, and people had cases all over the place. I mean, it just, uh, you, you would go to, as when I was an agent, when I first got here, if you had court on a Monday morning, in federal court, in magistrate's court, where they would bring first appearance uh, defendants who were arrested over the weekend, it was like being in a big city uh, drunk court on a Monday morning. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's one guy, you know, he was caught on it by customs on a on a boat with 500 kilos. Here's somebody else coming through the airport, had a kilo of heroin. Here's another person uh, caught somewhere else with 25 kilos. There's another person with 100 kilos. And thousands of kilos, even sometimes. I mean, it mm -hmm. was it was crazy, and it wasn't as crazy when I got there in 1988 as it was in the early 80s. It was even more crazy back in the early 80s. Right. Shootings and and when I first got to Miami in 1988, um, one time I figured it out, and it was about every 90 to 120 days, somebody in our DEA office was getting into a shooting incident, mm. and that went on for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, it just stopped. And the, in my opinion, the reason it stopped is because of, at the time, the sentencing guidelines were mandatory and people were getting 30 and 40 years for things they were doing. And it, it, it stopped. It stopped it. It stopped the violence. Well, like Kevin, Kevin Stevens, the agent I was telling you about, got shot in, uh, in the arm. And those types of things um, were just happening with far too much frequency. And it was actually worse years before then. But the cases, oh gosh, there were so many of them. I mean, it's, it's tough to remember. I remember one case I had a guy uh, from New York was coming through and they, they found something, uh, an edge in his briefcase. It didn't look right. And they stopped him and they opened up the briefcase and he had a, he had a pound, I think it was a pound if I remember of heroin that had been compressed into like a piece of cardboard and put into the, into the line inside the lining of the top of his briefcase so we busted him i was on a task force at the time and took him in and while he was in jail he ended up um he passed another uh, i don't know how many ounces of heroin that he had swallowed 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 in Colombia and didn't bother to uh, tell anybody about it. he could have died from that but he passed it and they, i think they got it right but he went to prison for a long time as well he should have sure and we were i mean the, the cases were just everywhere um and you know you did the best you could do well, let's get specifically to the Noriega case. Um, 
And uh, we know that uh, eventually uh, Noriega was, uh, you know, the military had uh, basically went after him in, in Panama. But talk to us about the intricacies of the investigation and how you got involved in the Noriega investigation. Well, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, historic conspiracy cases are something that I always I did. I did a lot of them. I did a bunch of them in Baltimore. I did them everywhere I was. And they're a little more involved. They're a little more complex, and they take a lot of time occasionally, mm-hmm. as opposed to just catching someone with drugs in their, in their car or in, on their person or in their possession. And that's what Noriega's case was. It was a historical conspiracy case because no one caught Noriega with any drugs in his possession. So I want to say it was around sometime between September, October, and November before the invasion in 1989, I was assigned to be the co-case agent on Noriega. Now, at this time, Noriega had already been indicted. There's a guy named Danny Moritz who was the case agent that actually did all the work on that. Noriega had been indicted. He was wanted. Uh, of course, we had no uh, extradition treaty at the time with Panama, but he was indicted. But they wanted to redo the case or l- at least take a look at it. And because of my background with historic conspiracy cases, they um, asked me to, to join the team. And I did. And then I came home for Christmas to Maryland, visit my parents um, in 1989. And that's when the invasion occurred in December 1989. Well, I went back and they sent me down to, when I came back from leave, they sent me down right after the invasion to Panama. And I spent a month or so, a month and a half there. And then we started uh, getting to work in earnest because Noriega was in custody and we were going to have a speedy trial issue if his lawyer moved for that. Mm-hmm. And we basically redid, we, we reinvestigated the case. We took the stuff we had and we came up with some really great stuff um, and it, it, for about almost three years. Uh, his lawyer um, kept pushing for delays, and, and what he did is he gave us more time to make sure that we had an even better case. Um, we found one, one one of the defendants' name. He was named in the indi- first indictment as, or the only indictment, as Roberto Steiner. Well, his real name was Roberto Stridinger, and Str- Stridinger is a very difficult name um, for. Uh, people whose main language is Spanish to pronounce, some of them, and whoever they got this from, in this case, mispronounced his last name. And we were able to learn that his real name was Stridinger and that he was in Miami and that he used to be Pablo Escobar's chief of aviation. And the ironic part of it is that he lived in a house on Key Biscayne that had formerly been Nixon's winter White House. And after uh, Nixon sold it to a Canadian doctor, the doctor knocked Nixon's buildings down and put up this house. And if you want to see what that house looked like, uh, watch the movie Scarface with Al Pacino, and I think it was Michelle Pfeiffer. There's an elevator in there that she goes up and down in, in that movie, and that's the house. And it was right next door to B.B. Rebozo. Well, we ended up getting some uh, good information that Stridinger was in Miami. And if he got out back to Columbia at the time, we had no extradition agreement with Columbia. If he got to the Bahamas, he would get away. And he had a go fast boat right out back. We watched him for three or four days and through a lot of help from um, Miami-Dade police and our other partners and ATF and, and everybody. We were able to catch Mr. Stridinger coming in on his boat. He'd been out uh, fishing or diving or something with his boat. 
and we caught him and he cooperated immediately and let us search the house. And, and we got a lot of evidence from Mr. Stridinger and Mr. Stridinger cooperated and testified at Noriega's trial. And he was very valuable. We also um, developed another witness over in, in France. I got a trip over there on two occasions to Paris and we interviewed him. He was arrested in Martinique, which is a French possession flying uh, loads of cocaine and he got caught and he got time and he was shipped to Paris to serve his time. So we went over there and we were able to roll him over too. And we roll him over, I mean, get him to cooperate. And he physically put Noriega, both of these two guys, physically put Noriega in Colombia, in Medellin with, with the cartel. And then Carlos later ended up cooperating and he was um, an unbelievable witness at trial. He really was. And he um, he also testified against against Noriega. Then we found a, a third guy who was um, he wasn't really directly to our involvement, but in our indictment. But there was another indictment of Noriega in Tampa. And he was a main witness in that case, which ended up not ever being prosecuted because Noriega got so much time over here. Um, he uh, he was great. His name was Stephen Michael Kalish, and he was extremely intelligent, extremely bright. And his testimony was that uh, first time he was introduced to Noriega, he didn't speak. Mr. Kalish didn't speak a word of Spanish, but he gave Noriega a zero Halliburton briefcase with three hundred some thousand dollars in it. That was a, I want to be your friend gift. And Mr. Noriega enjoyed that money. And in fact, he enjoyed it so much he ended up. Uh, arranging for Mr. Kalish to get a diplomat passport from the country of Panama, even though he never lived in Panama in his life and was not a citizen there and didn't speak a word of Spanish. He still got him a, uh, a diplomat passport. And so he cooperated. And what was great about him is that when he was arrested in the Tampa case, he wrote Noriega a letter. He wrote on spiral notebook. He ripped the spiral notebook out, but he kept the spiral notebook and sent it to a secretary and she translated it into Spanish and they sent it down to Noriega. When the military raided Noriega's house, they found that, that note, both the English version and the Spanish version hmm. and forensics was able to positively connect that ripped out notebook that was written in English papers that uh, Kalish wrote to the notebook that they taken from Kedish when he was arrested. So that was great evidence too. And basically mm -hmm. saying, I, I won't cooperate against you. You know, I'm sorry this happened. Don't worry. Da, 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 da. And it was all very incriminating for Noriega, but Noriega had it in his, uh, in his safe at his house. Interesting. Yeah. We had a lot of interesting things uh, that happened in that case. Well, at the time that uh, Noriega was the president of the country, uh, Panama became a central hub for money laundering. And, uh, a lot of the cartels were uh, laundering their money through the Panamanian banks. Yes, they were. <clears throat> yes, they were. And Noriega allowed the uh, cartel to set up a, a lab in the Darien province. And I was um, assigned to a Navy SEAL team to go interview some X's were found on maps in his planes and helicopters. And we went actually searched a couple of places, but the area had been cleaned out, but we didn't find any labs. Um, that was kind of cool too um, to spend a, a little over a week with the Navy SEAL team. They're so un, they're so unbelievable, unbelievably well trained. It, it just boggles your mind. They're really uh, our nation's best. Oh, absolutely. So you did go with uh, the Navy SEAL team. 
uh, in in the to the countryside, I guess, of Panama, and, and look for additional evidence on Noriega. Yep, we got on we got onto a maybe a gunboat. I don't really know much about maybe gunboats, but it had um, it had it had a automatic grenade launcher. It had a cannon in the front, and a couple of fifties, and a couple of uh, M sixties. And it, I mean, it was nasty looking, and I'll never forget it because it was the morning. It was very early in the morning, but they had just opened the Panama Canal when we were pulling out. We had to go out into the Pacific, uh, and as we're going by, the the first cruise ship was coming through, and we were on the gunboat and it had a huge American flag off the uh, stern, and there must have been ten thousand flash cubes went off on that boat when they went past us, and they were all yelling and cheering. Hmm. It was a patriotic moment. How long was Noriega's trial? We well, it actually went six months, but there was a little bit of a hiatus because the judge had to have some surgery. But so really, all the trial time was probably around five months, and uh, it was uh, it was quite a trial. It really was. Put a lot of witnesses. I bet. How, how much time did Noriega end up? Uh, <laughs> he originally, if I remember correctly, he originally got forty years, and then it was cut down to 30 or something and back when uh, the, under the law he was sentenced for you didn't have to serve 85 percent uh, i think he served about a third of it served a good bit of time and then he was sent to paris he was convicted over there and served some time there and then after he served his sentence in uh, in france he was sent back to panama because he had arranged for the murder of a, of a doctor named spatafora they found his headless body dumped uh, just across the border and I think in, just north of, in the Costa Rica, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And um, and he was going to be going to trial for that. I don't really know what happened with the trial. But then ultimately he died. Right. Noriega died right. yeah, of natural causes. Yep. So after uh, uh, the Noriega uh, trials, you decided to go to law school, which is a tough thing to do being a DEA agent and going to law school at the same time. And I know uh, even talking to you many times when you were going to school, how much you had a struggle and study and et cetera. And uh, then uh, your career changed a little bit. And so you went to being a DEA agent, criminal investigator to a uh, federal prosecutor. So tell us a little bit about that transition. It was, uh, it was really great. I mean, um, at that time, I was in my fifties, and and I got into the U.S. Attorney's Office, and, and I have to tell you, it's um, it, it's pretty sensational to be able to stand up and say your name, and and then recite on behalf of the United States of America. And I, I took my responsibilities as a federal prosecutor very seriously. I was very, very fortunate to be able to do that because I'm just not that smart, and most of those guys are brilliant. I mean, I think we had uh, two or three people who had been um, law clerks for the United States Supreme Court and Harvard and Yale, and and then there's uh, me. Um, but I had wonderful people. It was the most wonderful place uh, in the Department of Justice to work that you can imagine. Um, great support from the office, and it was just it was wonderful. And get, getting ready for trials are are pretty. Uh, pretty exciting i mean to have these trials and to speak and 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 to pursue uh, justice not to pursue convictions not to convict everybody but to make sure that justice is done that's what your goal is and i absolutely loved it and um, i did that for four years until i had to retire from dea and they hired me right back 
um, as a regular assistant U.S. attorney, and I continued for another five years doing that. So I had a total of um, nine years as a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of Florida, and it was absolutely, I miss it every day, but it was just, um, it was, I had a wonderful run, but it was just time for me to, to do something else. Sure. Well, you know, as you talk to the people in the general public, they don't really understand um, all the rules and regulations that not only as DEA do, but uh, the U.S. attorney's offices have to go through. And the seriousness of grand jury indictments and the seriousness of how the federal government takes cases, especially uh, when you're talking about drug trafficking. And uh, one of the intricacies is the grand jury, and a lot of people just don't understand it. And uh, as we all know, that uh, the government has been very successful uh, in prosecuting drug traffickers. In fact, uh, you know, not too many cases have ever been lost in federal court. It's generally about an 85% conviction rate of those that go to trial. I mean, but is there not guilty verdicts? Occasionally there is for different reasons. So under the Department of Justice guidelines, though, um, as you and I both know, there's some very strict compliances that as both prosecutors and agents uh, have to follow. It's just not like what you see on TV that you go out and, and you indict somebody. No, there's a, there's a lot more to it than that. This is not, um, it's, it's not that simple. Yeah, and it's not as simple, especially when you do uh, Title III investigation wiretaps uh, where, you know, you have to go back through uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office to uh, Maine Justice uh, and, and deal with those people there and then come back to the U.S. Attorney's Office and then go to a federal judge and get, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the warrant signed. I, I had one case as a prosecutor, uh, and I had, it was a marijuana, historical, but it was a marijuana grow house case. These, um, this group of brothers, family people, brothers, uncles, father, cousins, um, all involved in growing marijuana in South Florida and, and one place, one house in St. Cloud, which is up in central Florida. And they would grow this marijuana. And then about a four month cycle, they would get a, a bit of harvest and then they prepare it and they take it up North and sell it for some ridiculous amount of money per pound. Anyhow, um, they got ripped off by uh, a couple of people dressed up like cops. They found out who one of them was and they found him and they hunted him down and they cart carjacked him and kidnapped him in his own van. And they were taking him away and uh, something happened and they ended up shooting him and killing him and dumping him on the road like a, like a dead animal. And they got away and they burned the van in the middle of the Everglades, but we got him and we went after him. There was an FBI case and Miami-Dade homicide. And we had uh, seven or eight people that were death penalty eligible. And we can't decide when someone is death penalty eligible, we can't decide locally what we're going to do. We have to submit all this paperwork. I mean, it was a couple of hundred pages of paperwork and it has to go up to DC and they have a panel up there that makes a decision as to whether you will or will not seek the death penalty. And that's what we did in this case. And we had eight, as I said, seven or eight of them death penalty eligible. And um, we convicted everyone. And um, there were some very serious sentences handed out. 30 years and more. I think one guy got a life. Um, but 
it, it wasn't easy and it took a couple of years to get all that accomplished. Now let's move forward, Lenny. Tell us a little bit about uh, your law practice and what you currently do today. Well, I'm, I'll be 69 on Friday, so I, I take cases as they come in, the ones I want to take, I take. The ones I don't want to take, I don't take. I predominantly do federal court, although I do have some, some stuff in state court. And I'm available. Um, I, my most recent thing I did is over the holidays, I sued the mayor and city of Key West over their um, curfew, which I think was improperly enacted. Uh, I didn't win the temporary restraining order, but we tried anyway. Um, I also uh, defended people, uh, defended some some drug traffickers in uh, Puerto Rico, and I defended another man um, out in Spokane, Washington, and a number of them in Miami. So I'm available uh, for consultation. I've worked on some visa cases. I've done criminal defense for various crimes in state and federal court, and I'm available for that. And I have a website. It's uh, law.com. My last name is law.com. I have a website if anyone would like to take a look at that. And, and I'm available. Uh, I'm admitted throughout the state of Florida in federal court and state, of course, state of Florida, um, state court or anywhere in Florida. And I'm also admitted to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Well, that's great, Lenny. And listen, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast today. Um, I, the purpose of trying to get people to understand the dangers uh, of what DEA agents do, and it does go unheralded in, in a lot of occasions. A lot of people don't hear about it, and I'm trying to be that voice uh, for agents who risk their lives every day with DEA. So again, thank you uh, for coming on our show. Well, don't cut yourself short either, Mr. Ferletta. You were a great historical conspiracy guy, and you had a ton of fantastic cases. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.